Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. These are tough times to be a parent. Most schools in the St. Louis area are being conducted almost entirely online. That's left parents scrambling to set up Zoom calls for their kids, even as they handle their own workloads. But the burden is even heavier for parents of children with developmental disabilities. Many of these students needed special support even before the pandemic. And now parents are doing whatever they can to try to provide it, but it's just not always possible. One of those parents is Diane Southard. She is raising eight children in St. Louis County, and she joins us today to talk about her experience. Diane, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm hoping you can start by telling us a bit about your family. I understand five of your children have some form of, of developmental disability. What are they dealing with? Well, um, so I have five children who all have IEPs, and three of them have a diagnosis of a developmental disability, um, in actually including an intellectual disability. And all three of those children also have difficulty talking. One is actually does not use any verbal words at all and two have very limited language and so they also use augmentative communication devices to help them communicate. And you use that that, uh, phrase IEP. I know that's something that, that parents talk a lot about but for our listeners who aren't parents what exactly is that? So these are individual educational, I'm sorry, <laughs> individual education plans. And so it is something that is afforded to us um, for children who are showing that they're having difficulties in learning. Some people might have an IEP, an individualized education plan, which is particular to them. It is individualized because every child has a different need. We're all not able to be put into a box. Some other people have 504 plans, so while their needs may not be as significant as other students, they might have some issues, which might be just medical, um, where they need some extra support, but it's afforded to us um, while we all are afforded our free, appropriate public education, which we often call FAPE. Okay. And so with these IEPs, normally when kids are in school, that means they get some extra services. Um, there's, there's special attention paid to try to keep them at the right grade level and, and help them learn the way that they need to learn. Is that fair to say? Yes, it is. Um, in fact, I have two students who have IEPs where they just have some supportive services, um, assistance with reading and math, and they might receive those in class, outside of class, you know, some push-in services into the general education environment or extra processing time for test-taking. And those help them stay up with the rest of their peers. I also have the three students who have significant disabilities who actually have one-to-one paraprofessional support. So they have actually an individual who is with them all throughout the day, helping them so they can stay on task. Okay. So that's during a normal school situation. They have that one-on-one help. But I understand that now, due to this pandemic, seven of your eight kids are home with you for school. Is that right? Uh, How is that even possible? My mind just hurts even trying to think about what that must require. Uh, Well, Wi-Fi is failing. (laughs) We've we've upgraded. Uh, So, yes, I have seven e-learners here. I fortunately have one e-learner who is attending St. Louis University in an apartment across the street. So um, she is not having to deal with our Wi-Fi. But I have seven individuals who are all e-learning here. And honestly, I have to say three of them have basically not been able to 
access the virtual learning at all. Mm. Is this a problem with your Wi-Fi or is this a problem with their needs and what comes through with virtual learning? The issue with it is I am one person having to assist three individuals who have one-on-one pair support. And honestly, be, uh, since the pandemic, it has significantly impacted my nine-year-old daughter who has a medical diagnosis of autism. She does not use any language, and uh, but she does communicate. And in her form of communication right now is she's very frustrated. She doesn't understand all these changes in rules, regulations, and schedules. And over the past two weeks since our virtual learning has started, she has had a really hard time, and it is impacting her safety. And so just not being able to leave her alone at all does not allow me to assist my other two children who need that one-on-one pair of support. And I, I need to keep her safe. I need to make very difficult decisions for my family, and that means foregoing their virtual learning and instead just using the supplies that our school has really worked hard to, um, to, to give us so we can accommodate it. However, it does not even come close to what they, the services they were receiving in the school environment during Diane, the typical pre-COVID time. Diane, this sounds like just such a, a frustrating situation for you. Um, how are you able to even cope with just not being able to have, you know, you're not seven people and here you are trying <laughs> to do the work of, of so many other people. I mean, this, this sounds like just an incredibly difficult time for your family. It is. It is a very difficult time. The biggest issue, though, is really watching my children just be frustrated because they want to learn. My son, who is a senior, it's his senior year, he has limited language, but he tells me high school, and he names the friends in his class. He wants to go. He wants to see them. However, he can't. He needs that increased time to be able to respond to questions. He needs to know exactly what the topic is, what is expected, how long it's going to take, and what comes next. He requires a very uh, scheduled life to be able to really be fully active in this. And when all those things are in place, he does very well. This is not happening right now. My 16-year-old daughter is actually using her A-plus hours, which is a program throughout uh, Missouri where uh, where students can actually learn, earn some opportunity for free college after graduation. She's using that time during her ACT lab, which is basically a study hall, where she has, yesterday was my son's first session. He was able to participate in virtually because my daughter spent her school time, her ACT lab time, doing one-on-one with him. Hmm. And even that, he only was able to successfully be on 10 minutes because our kids are so off schedule, we're having to re-help them get back in. You know, with any student, it takes a lot to get back into the school year. Our students with disabilities, specifically significant disabilities, are really having a a hard time struggling. We're being asked to stay at home. You're asked to wear a mask when you go out. And we have to help. My son and my two sons and my daughter, who have significant disabilities, also have a lot of sensory issues. So helping them wear a mask takes so much out of them anyways. And then they're not able to they don't understand all the social rules about social distancing. Mm-hmm. And so it's been really difficult for for them. 
We're talking here today to Diane Southard. Um, she is the mother of eight children in, in St. Louis County and just dealing with a lot of um, complications due to this pandemic and having virtual schooling um, to handle on her own at home. Our second guest today has some insight into how this is playing out for families across the region and, and across, frankly, the U.S., and that is Dr. John Constantino. He is co-director of the Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities Research Center at Washington University School of Medicine. Dr. Constantino, welcome to the program. Thank you. So you recently co-authored a letter in the Journal of American Psychiatry. This was about the impact of the pandemic on individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And you started by saying, other than people who are infected with COVID-19, no group has been more impacted by this pandemic. How so? Well, I think it's basically telling Diane's story. Uh, most people don't understand it, 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 that everything that she described has nothing to do with the infection. Mm-hmm. It has to do with the fact of what the pandemic has done to restrict access to necessary supports that individuals with developmental disabilities need to be uh, engaged in education and to make their uh, great contributions to the community and society that they do. Uh, what we've been talking about is the impact on children, uh, and there's a whole uh, separate world of impact on adults with disabilities, and then a whole separate impact on people with disabilities who actually are infected or at risk for infection by COVID. And so what we wanted to do in this letter in the American Journal of Psychiatry was to uh, garner the um, the perspectives of the leading uh, scientists, clinician scientists around the U.S. who are engaged in research and clinical care for individuals uh, across the age spectrum for developmental disabilities and to report on what the, in a, in a concise way, what is the real magnitude of impact. And what you heard from Diane is exactly what we uh, probably uh, not in any way as eloquently really, or as high impact, but put into words so that the public would understand. Diane talked about having um, these individualized education plans for five of her kids. And under some of them, she's supposed to get services that include, you know, a one-on-one aid here to help them with their work. She's not getting that during this pandemic. From what you've learned um, from other school districts and, and other families dealing with this, is this common that that kind of service has just vanished? It's absolutely common. And and uh, developmental disabilities affect approximately one in six U.S. children. And so when you think about what that means in terms of the the burden across the country, let alone in our own region, uh, this is a very uh, common problem, Sarah. And and I think one of the things about uh, the conversation about return to school and about the allocation of resources for children in education is that, you know, luckily, telehealth and video conferencing has made moving on with life possible for many children and many people, but not for this population or not for many of them. For some of them who can, you know, manage and some some children with disabilities even benefit from a telehealth kind of or a video conferenced virtual learning uh, kind of platform, but most that are affected and, and, uh, and are burdened in the way that Diane was describing really just have no play. And so we think that this needs to be an inc- like an incredibly highly prioritized part of the conversation about returning to school is not just, well, how much virtual, how much in-person, but 
who really needs in person to make any kind of educational progress and to have a play at, uh, at uh, continuing their learning. Diana, it kind of seems like the idea of this population falling through the cracks is almost an open secret among some educators and parents that people are like, yeah, you know, this is just part of what's happening in this pandemic. And there seems to be this attitude that we all need to sacrifice to keep COVID-19 counts under control. And if that's not your top priority, it should be. And yet, you know, you're dealing with the fallout from that. What would you say to people who are trying to balance um, the importance of both of these issues? A very good, um, <laughs> very good question because I, I have, I've written to everyone that I could possibly do. You know, I am a, I, I really truly understand the concerns of the pandemic. Um, but what I've said is that our best is not good enough. We need to do better. We need to prioritize and almost triage right now what we can do. There are people who need to go into the hospital for certain care. Some people can be taken care of at home. Um, I have students who are capable of staying at home and learning, but my other children, I have three children who are, who are, we are failing them. We are not offering them what they need. And the long-term aspect is, I, I don't even want to look at that. You know, as a parent of a person with a disability, we're always looking for the next steps. What is what we are doing right now going to help them to be as independent as possible? And I just ask them to look at what we are doing, how we are looking into the future, because we have been asked to sacrifice uh, by many people that I have written letters to. At this time, they're asking us to sacrifice. I cannot sacrifice my children. You know, we've already been doing this since March 13th when we came home from school for spring break, and they have not been to school yet, yet, and we are not able to give them what they need to continue to learn. Uh, We need to look at other options and see what safe steps we can to get our students who most need it back in class. We're talking today to Diane Southard. She's a mother of eight in South St. Louis County. We're also talking to Dr. John Constantino. He's the co-director of the Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities Research Center at Washington University School of Medicine. We do need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7 KWMU. And now back to our conversation. We're talking about the challenges faced by parents of children with disabilities with Diane Southard. She's the mother of eight children in St. Louis County, five of them with special needs. And we're also joined today by Dr. John Constantino. He's the co-director of the Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities Research Center at Washington University School of Medicine. And Dr. Constantino, as we were talking about before the break, you wrote a letter, co-authored a letter, uh, that was published in the Journal of American Psychiatry just highlighting these issues and calling for some changes, saying that we need to make it a priority to figure out how to get some of these kids back in school. I understand your initial audience was clinicians, but it really struck a chord. What kind of reaction did this letter get? Well, it um, it got, I think, a very appropriate recognition by the media. It got picked up by a sub, uh, several uh, major news outlets, including CNN and MSN, uh, the state offices for developmental disabilities have gradually been uh, disseminating the information and the, the, the letter to its constituents to kind of get everybody's mind around the problem uh, for all stakeholders for the cause of individuals with developmental disabilities. And, uh, and the, uh, the national group of uh, the Association of University Centers on Disabilities 
actually uh, shared the letter with all uh, members of Congress, and have, we've already been getting uh, responses from them about to thank, thank you know, thanking the, the group for clarifying the issues and giving them a target to work on. And one of those, one of those targets in relation to education, uh, you know, relates to thinking about uh, how uh, in-person support, in the, whether at home or in the schools, needs to be really uh, very carefully considered and prioritized. And I, and I want to say, Sarah, that uh, you know, as a physician, one of our biggest concerns and, and highest priorities is to protect our teachers and to make sure that they're safe. I think the, the point here of talking about, about this is that as the conversations proceed about uh, amalgams of in-person and virtual learning for students, and, you know, trying to, uh, as soon as we can, and we're, you know, we're getting better with rapid testing. We're getting closer, hopefully, to a vaccine. I think there are going to be new things on the horizon as we move forward. But I think people have to be poised that as these conversations are moving forward and considering any options for students to, you know, resume and normalizing in-person education, I think this population of children needs to be at the front of the discussion and really very highly prioritized given how hard this has been on them and their families. Uh, You wrote in this letter, quote, from an educational standpoint, the many individuals at risk for such consequences from online learning should be the first to return from school. They deserve priority for resources to safely resume in-person learning. Yet it feels like in some cases, it feels like just the opposite. Do you think that's fair to say in terms of how we've handled this so far up to this point? Well, I think, you know, we certainly can't say anything, you know, on that vein of schools that have gone completely virtual. I mean, for that there's an equity across all students, even though that it incurs an inequity for the students with disabilities, because they're less able to use virtual learning than everybody else. Mm -hmm. And I think the the problem there has been that uh, the fallback of virtual learning, although it is a solace for most of the population of children, is no solace for these kids and really not a solution. But I think the, the, the bigger issue is that there are some districts where, uh, you know, combinations of in-person learning uh, and virtual learning or school-based activities, even sports, uh, have actually been reenacted or invigorated without any, uh, 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 you know, co-occurring prioritization of these students whose needs for in-person support, coaching, mentoring, education – uh, you know, literally outstrip that of uh, uh, almost uh, any student that you can imagine. Hmm. Diane, are you seeing that in the district um, that serves your children? Are they bringing things back like sports and, and things that maybe feel a little less of a priority to you? Well, you know, one thing for if you go for the perspective, you know, for these students, sports is very important to them. But yes, sports are going on. My junior daughter actually goes off. She plays golf, so that's a little safer than most. But she leaves the house every day to go practice with her high school golf team um, at our local elementary school where my children are not allowed to go to receive their IEP services. We do have the before and after school uh, care that is there all day long. And, you know, I understand that is deemed essential. People do need to be able to go to work, Mm -hmm. but my students are also being denied being able to go in and receive the therapies that are offered, that are afforded to them and their individualized education plans. 
and they're Di- able Diane, to keep some j- students Just safe. to make sure I understand this, so they previously would offer like an aftercare type service. Now they're making that available to students to study there during the day, perhaps with, with social distancing while they're doing their virtual learning. Correct. That is, they are able to safely keep those students there all day long. However, they have not figured out a way to bring in our students who most need therapy services who are not able to utilize their Chromebooks or other communication, uh, their computers to access virtual learning. Hmm. So they can keep some students safe. They can't keep my children safe. Dr. Constantino, that sounds like exactly the kind of thing you're talking about, that if we can figure out how to do this one thing, why can't we figure out how to how to prioritize this other one? That's right. And I think, you know, there there are options that I think have to be very carefully considered about, again, higher levels of precautions for the teachers, including even uh, uh, various kinds of PPE that uh, that would protect, you know, teachers for close contact with students who need that. I think uh, another consideration is that we are just now entering the era of rapid turnaround testing with saliva. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are several FDA-approved uh, opportunities for that, and we are hoping that there will be opportunities to uh, use that kind of testing on even a daily basis to to reassure teachers and faculty uh, and and identify kids who have contracted uh, COVID to you know certainly keep them home and safe, but uh, but to uh, uh, place a higher level of safety for teachers. I mean, I, I think it's very important to. To, to clarify that, you know, under any circumstances with groups of children, teachers are already putting themselves at, at some degree of risk. And, you know, we want to protect our teachers. And at the same time, if we're willing to allow a certain level of risk, we really have to think carefully about how to frame that in relation to what the the, the level of needs of the children to to be educated are. Mm -hmm. We've heard from a number of listeners um, on our social media for St. Louis on the Air, and um, Diane, they just really feel for you. Joshua writes on Twitter, I can't imagine how hard this would be. I have two boys virtual learning, a fifth grader with an IEP communication disability, and then a neurotypical kindergartner. Just trying to navigate these two has been a nightmare. And Jennifer writes on Facebook, as a parent of a special needs child, who is struggling. Area school districts returning to in-person school need to prioritize bringing back special needs kids who need significant support first. Other districts are already doing this. In Springfield, Missouri, they have four-day pers- four in-person for both special needs and early childhood. Um, Dr. Constantino, you said your letter was being widely circulated. It got to the halls of Congress. That's terrific to hear. Do you feel like the administrators who could really make a difference here or the people in the education systems of the states are here? this call and are taking this seriously now as as you say as some of these tests are becoming more available and we can start seriously considering this stuff well we certainly hope so and I and I can say with with you know confidence knowledge from the uh, from the effort that uh, the special school district of st. Louis County for example has uh, you know very seriously entertained and considered a strategy if we can implement rapid testing uh, for their teachers, that this would, you know, take up the level of confidence up a notch, that they would be, you know, very engaged in the conversation. And, and our unified special school district of St. Louis County is, is one of many special education programs region-wide, but one of extraordinary quality and, and, and collaboration. And I, it's, it's my ardent hope that we will be able to get these conversations on the table as schools are 
you know, understandably scrambling to just, you know, try to have some kind of semblance of, of, a, of a strategy for education in the context of a constantly moving target of a pandemic. I know that there are requirements under the law for kids who have IEPs. School districts have to take that very seriously. Do you think if, if school districts don't start thinking about this seriously and find a way to have effective education for these kids down the road, there might be a lawsuit against some of these districts? You bet, because I, I think the, the and not, not to be saying that in a threatening kind of way, but just to underscore Diane's point in another way, that families who uh, have watched the progress of their children starting from March at the start of the pandemic, for those kids who just uh, cannot benefit from virtual learning, they have watched their children's educational and achievement and even social and communicative progress either stall or go backwards uh, as a function of the pandemic. And so there are real consequences of the decisions that are made about who to provide in-person education. And uh, I think that, that there are many kids for whom, although it is a sacrifice, virtual learning is working and they are making progress. And there has to be equity in thinking about what uh, all children need to be able to reach their uh, highest potential. Diane, in our, our last minute here in this conversation, um, I know this has been a, a very frustrating period for you going back to last March, but you're continuing to do what you can. Does it give you some hope to hear Dr. Constantino saying that this letter is being circulated, people are talking about this issues, that, that there might be some changes ahead? Oh, definitely. You know, I think, you know, we just want to be heard and just for people to understand, it's not that we're looking for babysitters. It's not that we're looking to put our kids somewhere else. We are actively trying to help, but what the tools we have are not working. And there's nothing worse than watching your child try and not be able to be successful. And so reading Dr. Constantino's letter and knowing that it's going out, and I'll be following up actually <laughs> with my legislators and Dr. Sam Page and sending it out to make sure everyone has read that and understand, you know, it's just nice to be heard. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you're feeling heard. And, and I guess I, I want to tack on one last question to what I said would be the last question. Dr. Constantino, if parents are hearing this or, or just listeners are hearing this and they feel led to add their voices to this, what do you think is the most effective way they can help ma- amplify this message you're trying to get out? Well, I, I think definitely making sure that everybody in the community is aware. I think one of the things we were very concerned about is people just don't realize. I think once people know what the magnitude of the problem is, you know, most of the public is good-hearted and people understand. I think people try to recognize what's needed uh, as far as the, um, you know, the, the, the impact of things on people with developmental disabilities in our society. But I think sharing it, spreading the word, there's, there's a number of uh, uh, links that can be easily shared uh, in social media. And I think getting the word out and, and certainly advocating at the levels that Diane's talking about, local government, uh, the uh, school boards, and the, uh, the leaders of the special education programs. All right. Well, Dr. John Constantino, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. And Dr. Constantino, again, is the co-director of the Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities Research Center at Washington University School of Medicine. And I also want to thank Diane Southard uh, for joining us and, and sharing about her experience. Diane, thank you so much. You're welcome, and thank you as well. Yes, and best of luck to you. I know you have your plate full. We really appreciate you making the time with everything else you've got going on, so thank you. You're welcome. 
This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.